Please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31 is our text this morning. Genesis 1, 24 through 31. And as you turn there, I do invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seeds, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Pray with me, please. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would help us to behold you. You are our God seated on your throne, the sovereign creator of all things. And you are worthy of our worship and our adoration. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth as we receive your word this morning. Help us to humble ourselves before you, remembering that you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. This text necessitates that we would exalt you and bow down before you. So help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, as we have surveyed Genesis chapter 1 over the past several weeks, we have been introduced or reintroduced, if you will, to the sovereign creator of all. 
The power of God has been on display. The providence of God has been on display. The, the presence of God has been on display. The wisdom of God has been on display. And the beauty of God has been on display as we've worked our way verse by verse through Genesis 1. And yet, another day remains. It is the sixth day of creation wherein God completes his work of filling the earth. And as we've seen this far, this is the custom that now day six corresponds to day three. You may remember that on day three, there were two creative acts. God caused dry land to appear, and then he caused vegetation to sprout forth from the land. And here we are on day six, where God makes creatures that will dwell upon that dry land and eat of its vegetation. The unique thing about the verses before us that cover day six is that more space and more details are given to the creative acts on day six than any of the previous days. And this indicates for us that there's a greater significance, if you will, to day six in comparison to the previous days. Of course, each day of creation is indeed significant. However, the occurrences of day six include one key detail, the creation of man. Man is the only creature said to be made in the image of God. If you want to know God's intentions for his creation, then you need to know our text this morning. If you want to know where you came from and, and why you are here, then you need to know our text this morning. If you want to know what God has to say about your significance and your purpose on the earth, then you need to know our text this morning. And if you ever doubt if you or any other person upon this earth has inherent value or worth, then you need to know our text this morning. Beloved, day six is the culmination of creation. And if we simply take God at his word in this text, then there is but one appropriate response. We must worship the only God who is our creator and king. And that's really the main idea. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31, we find three stages of creation's day six that invite us, but more than invite us, it necessitates us to stand in awe and worship God the creator. If you haven't noticed, that's really what Genesis one does altogether. Over and over and over again, we're invited to worship the God who made everything. Six days with multiple stages, God's glory on display. And in the very first chapter of the very first book, he says, this is who I am. Come and worship. But today, we find three stages on the sixth day of creation. And you see the outline before you in the bulletin. First, we're going to look at the commencement of day six, which I've subtitled Cattle, Creepers, and Creatures in verses 24 and 25. Then we're going to see the climax of day six, creation of man in God's image. And lastly, we'll see the completion of day six, 
divine providence and approval in verses 29 and 31. I'm going to give you a heads up. The second point will be the longest by far. That being said, let us begin with the commencement of day six, cattle, creepers, and creatures. Verses 24 and 25. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Here we are again. We should never get tired of this, but we do see it once again. The powerful agency of God's will. God verbally communicates his desire. He expresses his will in those beautiful words. And it was so. God speaks and that which he communicated immediately comes into existence. And as we've seen day after day, once God communicates what he desires, then he looks back on what he creates and he gives divine approval by seeing that it was good. And in this instance, God's expressed desire is for living creatures or living beings. The general term is translated as living creatures in the ESV. And these living creatures, once again, are made according to their kinds, which is the repeat, repeated phrase that we've seen throughout Genesis 1. And it bears restating that God creates specific living beings according to their kinds, which means that each kind that he created is made with a specific genetic structure that allows them to reproduce within that kind. Or in other words, God creates living creatures as mature so that each creature could reproduce according to its kind. Why is this important for us? Is because we can throw Darwinian evolution right out the window. God's word has communicated clearly that he creates beings and creatures according to their kind with the ability to reproduce. And while there is a general term translated as living creatures, the text goes on to specify three types of living creatures that were made according to their kinds. We see the terms livestock, we see the term creeping things, and we see the beast of the earth. And the Hebrew terms behind each and every one of these words, they do have a wide semantic range. They can be used in different ways. But nevertheless, what we have in Genesis 1 is a categorization, if you will, to some extent, of the, the kinds of living creatures or the types of living creatures that God was creating. We see livestock. Some translations do translate that cattle. What, what we want to think about is animals that could be domesticated or herded. We're thinking about farm animals. The next thing we see is creeping things. This would include things such as insects and worms and perhaps even reptiles that slither or crawl upon the earth. And the last thing we see is beasts of the earth, and these would be animals that are not easily domesticated. We want to think wild animals. When I translated this text, I translated these living creatures as livestock, creeping creatures, and wild creatures. And the point is simply this, that on day five, God created sea creatures and birds, and that on day six, he created every other kind of animal that dwells upon the earth. And in so doing, his beauty, 
and his creativity and his wisdom are on display. Humor me for just a moment. I'm a, I'm a city boy. That's what I am. However, my mom's side of the family is, is what I like to call small-town country folk. And when I would visit my uncles in small-town Ohio, I would drive through cattle pasture after cattle pasture. And uh, if you don't see it, the smell itself is unmistakable. You would know where you were. But it wasn't really until I went to college and I had some teammates who had a farming background, and they invited me to get up close and personal with some livestock, cows and pigs in particular. I never thought much of it. These college football guys tossing pigs here and there, doing crazy things to cattle. But now looking back at that time with this text in mind, I'm amazed that on day six of creation, God saw fit to make animals that would be an asset and create a livelihood for people all over the earth. I thought nothing of it, but now coming to Christ and reading his word, this is the wisdom and the providence of God. Earlier this year, my son Jude and I, we went to a hike in PV, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Judah is a, a real outdoorsman. I need to step my game up. He loves everything outdoors, fishing, hunting, these types of things. And so we went on this hike, and we saw insects, and we saw lizards. And as we were going back to our car, lo and behold, there was a slithery creature in the plants. I didn't see it, but Judah did. And it was a rattlesnake. He was so excited. <laughs> Looking back on that time with this text in mind, I'm amazed that on day six of creation, God saw fit to make creeping creatures that would provide such joy and excitement to a young boy. Here we are in Los Angeles. It's what I like to call the concrete jungle. But believe it or not, there are real jungles with trees and grass. They really do exist. And uh, we don't have easy access to such jungles. This is one of the reasons I like to watch nature documentaries. But because we don't have easy access to these kinds of jungles, my family and I have a membership to the Los Angeles Zoo. And although the wild animals are not in their wild ha habitat, you should... Uh, just sit for an hour and watch the gorillas gorilla. It's unbelievable. Don't think much of it, but with this text in mind, I'm amazed that God on day six of creation made wild animals that provide just a glimpse, just a glimpse of his creative genius. So what's the point, Kenny? The living creatures that God made at the commencement of day six invite us and necessitate us to stand in awe of God and worship him as creator. In other words, sometimes 
us busybodies here in Southern California need to slow down. And we need to see the fingerprints of God all around us when we encounter such animals. Well, that is great and that is grand. However, it is God's next creative act on day six that should astound us and cause our worship of him to increase. This is the climax or the pinnacle of day six. It's the creation of man in God's image in verses 26 and 28. The text reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The very fact that man was created on the final day of creation as the final creative act suggests that mankind is God's crown jewel of creation. And this idea is really displayed in several ways, and I have six ways that I want to share it with you. First, the creation account, as we work our way through it, seems to be laid out in such a way, in such a fashion, that it's an ascending order of significance with human life at the end as the pinnacle of God's creation. Second, the creation of man is the only creative act preceded by this statement. Let us make. The expression, let us make, replaces the previous expressions, which we've become accustomed to, let there be, or and let the earth. And this places emphasis on God's personal activity in the creation of man. Exegetically speaking, as we're working our way through Genesis 1, we, we get used to let there be and let the earth, but then when God says, let us make, the reader should immediately notice the difference and anticipate something marvelous. Third, human life alone is said to be created in the image of God. Fourth, God gives mankind the assignment, the assignment given to no other creature, the assignment to rule over his previous creations. Fifth, we have the verb bara, which is translated created. Look in verse seven, uh, 27. Three times it's repeated. He created, he created, he created. Again, emphasizing God's personal involvement in the creation of man in his image. And sixth, we see in verse 24 that the animals are said to come forth from the land, but man is only referred to as a direct creation of God, which will be highlighted for us when we get to chapter 2. These six ways indicate for us, indeed, that man is the crown jewel, the pinnacle of God's creation. That's introductory. There are several issues at hand when we consider the image of God and man that we need to address specifically within these three verses. First of all is this. What are we to make of the plural pronouns, us, 
and our in verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we see that there's a parallel in verse 26 and verse 27. The parallel between verse 26's let us make and verse 27's so God created indicates that the terms us and God are synonyms. And the verb make in verse 26 is also plural. So what do we do? Because up to this point, we've just seen God in the singular. Well, these plurals in this passage have been understood, or as I like to put it, misunderstood, in a lot of different ways. I came across seven different ways to explain away the idea that there's any plurality within God. No, it can't mean that, and they come up with various ways. Time doesn't permit us to walk through those ways. But I do want to provide one of the most popular views and then set forth a biblical view. Some understand the plurals within this text as a divine address to the angelic realm or the angelic court. That is to say, some people suggest that when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, he is speaking to or deliberating with the angels. There's a few difficulties with that view. The first difficulty is this, is the inclusion of angels in the phrase, in our image. The, the text repeatedly emphasizes that man is created in the image of God rather than in the image of angels. But that's not even the greatest problem. The greatest problem with this view is that there is absolutely no mention whatsoever of angels or the angelic court in Genesis 1. The whole of Genesis chapter 1 emphasizes and displays that God has no prior partner or source in creation. It emphasizes that God alone should be acknowledged as the creator. So then here in verses 26 through 28 to just suddenly introduce, without mention, by the way, that there's an angelic court that God is speaking to, diminishes both the exegetical and theological stance posited to us in Genesis 1. And that exegetical and theological stance is this, that God and God alone is the sole creator. There is no other. So what should we do with those plurals in our text? Let me go out on a limb here. If indeed the God of Scripture has eternally existed as three persons, as the Bible sets forth, and he does, then we should understand the plurals of our text as a divine dialogue within the Godhead himself. In other words, what we have here is an intra-Trinitarian dialogue present in the very first chapter of the very first book, and of course this reality is going to be elucidated or clarified later on in Scripture. I don't want to go too far. It may be too much to say that, Christian, that the Christian doctrine of the, the Trinity can be derived solely from this text. That'd be too much to say. But this is what this text does provide for us. It provides a plurality within the unity of the Godhead. It can be seen with terminology such as us and our. 
In other words, this passage is setting the standard. It's anticipating further and clearer revelation concerning the Trinity. We've already seen the Spirit in verse 2. We've talked about God being, uh, the Word of God being there and all things were created through the Word. Kevin mentioned earlier that we've been piggybacking to John 1 a lot. And so we see the Father's there, we see the Spirit's there, and later on in Scripture we see the Son is there at creation as well. One commentator put it this way. He says, this passage describes the result of God's creative act both by plural and singular pronouns. The plural possessive, our image, in verse 26, and the singular pronoun, his image, in verse 27. Here, the unity and plurality of God are in view. The plural indicates an intra-divine conversation, a plurality in the Godhead. End quote. If time would permit, we could look at John chapter 1, and we could look at Colossians chapter 1, and we could look at Hebrews chapter 1. We can see that the biblical view is that all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are present and active in creation, which indicates for us that let us and let our should be understood as an intra-Trinitarian conversation. Hopefully that issue is resolved, but we have another issue. While we can affirm that man is made in the image of God after the likeness of God, a question is, what is the image of God? What is the image of God? And before I try to unpack that, I think it's helpful for us to understand that the image of God and the likeness of God are roughly synonymous. Some have suggested that the two terms, image and likeness, may be used to, to emphasize different aspects of the divine image. But it's helpful for us to realize if we were to turn to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that those terms are used interchangeably. And perhaps it's best for us to say that man was created in the image and likeness of God. But that's too wordy for some. And the popular concept or the popular language for the concept is the image or the image of God or the imago Dei. So what we have in Genesis 1 is a clear indication of who is created in the image of God but it does not exactly say what the image of God is. And I can't tell you the amount of ink that has been spilled throughout the centuries discussing the image of God. It is truly vast. And so what I want to do is I want to simply set forth the three general views concerning the image of God and then provide my definition. The three views follow this question. Is the image of God something that man has, something that man does, or something that man is? Is the image of God something that man has, something that man does, or something that man is? The first view is what we call the relational view. It is something that man has. This is the relational view. Man has a unique relationship with God, which is the image. That's one view. The second view is the functional view. They say that the image of God is something that man does. The image is a function that man does or performs, and that's frequently seen as the exercise of dominion 
over the earth. So there's a relational view, the functional view. The, fir- the third view is this. It's known as the substantive or the inner quality view. And it goes something like this. The image of God consists of ontological qualities within man, such as morality, rationality, spirituality, etc. So if you have the re- relational view, the functional view, and the substantive view. And I understand the image of God to be the substantive view, the substantive view. I think that's accurate. It seems that the image of God is, a, is an ontological reality. When I say ontological reality, I'm talking about a reality of being, of, of isness, if you will. It seems that the image of God is an ontological reality of mankind at his creation. In other words, we could put it this way. Man's being amounts to God's image and likeness. Man's being amounts to God's image and likeness. That is, man is the image and likeness of God. And it is from this reality of man's being that relationship with God and others is established and his function is determined. So let me give you a definition. Let me give you a definition. I'll say it two times for those of you who like to take notes. The image of God can be said to be God's bestowal of his image and likeness, which are God-like endowments, qualities, or characteristics. The image of God can be said to be God's bestowal of his image and likeness, uniquely upon mankind at their creation, in order for man to have a proper relationship with God, with one another, which was to be expressed by functioning on the earth as God's representative mediators. One more time. The image of God can be said to be God's bestowal of his image and likeness, which are God-like endowments, qualities, or characteristics, uniquely upon mankind at their creation, in order for man to have a proper relationship with God and with one another, which was, be, which was to be expressed by functioning on the earth as God's representative mediators. And so what this definition does is it suggests that relationships and functions are made possible as a result of being made in the image and likeness of God, but that relationship and function are not themselves the image. So we're, our, our isness, our being, the, the ontological reality enables us to have relation, enables us to function in the way we ought, but relationship and function is not the image itself. And furthermore, it would seem to me that the concept of man as God's image bearer must incorporate the entirety of man's being. And so we're talking physical, spiritual, relational, emotional, functional aspects of who we are, the whole person, in order for us to be proper representative of God. Proper representatives of God. So, so now let's zoom out for a moment. That was a lot of technical terminology and definitions. You guys with me? I, I want to zoom out because I want us to take away one main thing. The one main thing is this. Based on the fact that mankind is created in the image of God, by the way, this is God's doing, not our doing. 
you have inherent worth and value. You have inherent worth and value. We should be blown away, blown away that we are made in the image of God. We should ponder that and chew that up and meditate on that and, and just be drawn to worship God, that we are image bearers of God. You are made in the image and likeness of God. Every person that you will see today and every person that you will see for the rest of your life is made in the image of God. So what's the outcome? So what's the outcome? We honor people. We value people. We care for people. We respect people. Because God has made us in his image. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves right now, but Kenny, don't you know your Bible? Genesis 3 is coming. The fall is right around the corner. What happens to the image of God after the fall? And in short, there's, there's good news. The image, in some sense, remains intact. It survived the fall. By the grace of God, the image is not obliterated as a result of the fall. But we do affirm that it's marred, absolutely, but God in his goodness still upholds the image. How do we know this? Is this just an assertion, or, or does the Bible teach that? Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, this again is after the fall, and it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So it seems to be that Moses is saying man is created in the image of God, and that image is passed on through natural reproduction, and he catalogs that for us in Genesis chapter 5 after the fall. But even stronger evidence in my estimation, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And this is the text where we would argue capital punishment from. Listen to what God says after the flood. This is, this is post-fall and post-flood. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So we have the image surviving the fall and the flood. And if that's not good enough, we'll just take a peek just for a moment in James chapter 3. James chapter 3, that famous text about taming the tongue that our words matter, what we say matters, that we're to honor God with our mouths. And James says this in verse 9 of chapter 3, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. By the grace of God, the image remains on every man, woman, and child. But I want you to know that purpose relates to being. That purpose relates to being. When we talk about our being, 
We are the image of God. Man is the image of God. That is being. But man is also created for God. And man is also created for fellowship in the truth and glory of God. That is purpose. All people are made in the image of God. And that being the case, all people should render to God what is God's, which is the entirety of their being. Being made in God's image, we are to live for his purposes. In in other words, the entirety of our being is purposed to live for God. But the problem is, is while we are in God's image, we don't always live out God's purposes. Is that a problem? Is there good news? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, we know how Genesis goes that our first parents rebelled against God and his word and the image was marred that they incurred a sinful nature and by nature, Scripture teaches us that we are under the wrath of God. Yet while the image is marred by the fall, it can be truly and totally restored by Christ. You want to know why Christ took on humanity? This is it. He is the only one after the fall who is truly human. Oftentimes we say to be human is to err. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus was truly human and never erred, never sinned. And he came and he lived on our behalf so that those who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sin, but not just forgiven of their sin. Would be restored to true humanity solely but surely now and perfectly when he comes again. This is what Colossians teaches us. If you peek at Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's reminding them of who they once were. He encourages them in the first part of chapter 3 to, to seek the things of God, set your minds on the things above, set your hearts on the things of bud, above. He says, Christ is your life. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and what? and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As a new creation in Christ, we have certainty that we are truly being restored and will perfectly be restored. And we praise God for his provision that the mar through Christ will be completely and totally gone. Now that we have some notion of what the image is, let us consider just briefly how God expressed his image with distinction. The text says male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created mankind in his image in two distinct sexes. In God's creation of humanity... In his image, as male and female, we see what? Unity and plurality. Unity and plurality. Unity and diversity. 
which in some sense, kind of mysteriously, but in some sense indicates the unity and plurality within the Godhead himself. And if that's the case, it's vitally important that we uphold this biblical distinction. A human male is a biological man that produces sperm for the purpose of procreation. A human female is a biological woman that produces eggs for the purpose of procreation. I want you to listen to what Andrew Walker says on God created, creating man, male and female. He says, and I quote, When God created humanity, he did not make us sexless monads. He made humanity in male and female forms. This means that gender and gender identity, if such a construct is at all intelligible, is an embodied reality. Male and female self-conception are not constructed from psychology alone. Male and female, according to the biblical portrait, are fixed bodily realities, meaning they are not interchangeable or er uh, eradicable. They are objectively known such that the identity of who we are as sex humans is not a mystery. <coughs> Lastly, male and female imply substantive differentiation. This differentiation is observed down to the chromosomal, uh, anatomical, reproductive, physiological, and emotive levels. This physical difference starkly manifests itself in the anatomical design of male and female, which makes procreation possible and the fulfillment of the cultural mandate actionable, end quote. Beloved, to call a man a female, or to call a woman a male, or to use masculine pronouns to refer to a female, or to use feminine pronouns to refer to a male, is an affront to God. We will love people enough to tell them the truth. And I don't know what it's going to cost you. We will love people enough to tell them the truth. Those who claim to be confused about genders and sexes or those who seem not to care about the objective reality of genders and sexes remain people created in the image of God. So we respect them and we will value them and we will honor them and we will speak the truth and love to them for God's glory and for their good. The created order of God is on the line in this conversation. And this brings us to our final consideration of three, these three verses. Uh, this is known as the cultural or the kingdom mandate. Notice in verse 28, back in Genesis 1, after God creates man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them, then God blessed them. I want to pause there for just a moment. Notice that blessing precedes command. God blessed them. We saw this earlier in verse 22 um, when he blessed the sea creatures and then he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Blessing precedes command or mandate. He blesses them, which is followed by five commands. And we can think of these commands in, in really two categories. The first Three commands, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We have no problem doing that here at Redeem South Bay, amen? 
May the Lord continue to bless this church with babies. It's an absolute blessing that we have so many kids running around this church. Thank you, Lord. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what he says for them to do. He blesses them and then says procreate. God desired for his image bearers to be all over the face of the earth. His desire is that his image would be absolutely everywhere. And he did that with this intention. As his image spreads across the earth, in every place, mankind would rule the earth. That's the second two commands. He says, subdue it, subdue the earth, that is, and have dominion over it. Subdue is to subjugate or to bring under control. Really, in the Hebrew, it's a violent word. It's talking about taking the earth and making it your own. It's talking about digging and using the resources and finding all the things. Subjugate absolutely everything and use it for your benefit. But when we think of dominion, we think of a kingly rule. A kingly rule. Kings have dominion. What we have in Genesis 1, beloved, is God is seen as the sovereign king over all the earth. And as he creates man, what he says is that I'm going to have man as my mediatory kings. You're going to rule and you're going to reign. God is the sovereign king whom every other king would bow down to and worship. But there are mediatorial kings set up here in Genesis 1. Time won't permit us, but it's fascinating to do a study on this. We see that God gives us the command to rule. We know Genesis 3 happens. Then the question is, well, do we still have dominion or not? And in Psalm chapter 8, David makes clear for us. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You create him a little lower than the gods. He goes on to say that they still have dominion. And so in, in uh, Psalm 8, we see that, okay, there's still this idea that mankind is to have dominion, but when we look around, it's a question. How well are we ruling? But then Hebrews chapter 2 indicates for us, quotes Psalm 8, tells us that we haven't seen this rule yet, man ruling upon the earth. But it says there is one that we have seen. And it specifically says, namely, Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we get this idea that, okay, Christ became a man that we might be united to him and rule under his headship. And finally, when we get to Hebrews chapter 22, fascinating passage, the new heaven, the new earth, it comes. And in one hand, chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about us being his servants, what else does it say? It says that we will reign with Christ. Do you realize that God's command here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 is not done? That there will be a new heaven and new earth. We will serve the king of kings, but we ourselves will reign with him. Take heart, precious saints of Redeemed South Bay. The best is yet to come. We have but scratched the surface 
of the understandings and implications of this text. Yet from what we have surveyed, I hope you can see that we are to stand in awe and worship. Now let's spend 30 seconds on point number three. The completion of day six. Divine providence and approval. Verses 29 through 31. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yield, yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its, uh, in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And God, I'm sorry, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. First thing we see is divine providence. The food that God created on day three wasn't designated as food yet, but as the creatures come, he communicates clearly to them. In some sense, you're on my mind before you're in here. Look what I've provided for you. Look at this earth that I've given you to subdue and rule. You have everything that you need, both for man and creatures. What a gracious, loving God. It's almost like he tells Adam and Eve, this, this, this might be almost maybe a, a little bit uh, too loose, but this is how I think of it. It's almost like God says, here you go, have a heyday. You're blessed and you're cared for and I've given you absolutely everything that you need. And so we see divine providence, but we also see divine approval. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was not good. It was very good. This is God's summary evaluation for all of creation. The previous days, he looks back over what he has made on that day and said it was good. But this time, the text indicates that he saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Everything that God had made includes the creation of day six, as well as the previous five days. His highest acclamation of approval is reserved for this day. Why? Because the uninhabitable and uninhabited earth had now been fully transformed into a well-ordered living world under the care of his image bearers. It's this simple, beloved. We're to respond to God and worship. That's what we're invited to do. If you believe what we've been studying in Genesis 1, how can we not Worship him. He says, you have worth. Now come to me and worship me because I am worthy. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to consider Genesis chapter 1 over the last several weeks. I pray that you would help us even now to offer up our voices to you in praise and adoration and worship because you are worthy. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of the fact that everyone that we see is made in the image of God and help us to love those who are made in the image of God enough to tell them the truth about who they are and who Jesus is and their purpose in life is to know you, to love you, and to live for you. Help us to make it our aim to please you by doing just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.